Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the People's COVID Inquiry and our first session, How Prepared Was the NHS? I'm Tony O'Sullivan. I'm co-chair of Keep Our NHS Public, who've called this inquiry. The inquiry is tasked to look at the urgent lessons to be learned from this coronavirus pandemic. We support calls for a public inquiry, of course, but the scale of the ongoing crisis means the People's COVID inquiry is needed right now. A journalist asked me the other day two things. Will we be inviting the government to the inquiry? And will the inquiry base its findings on factual evidence? My answer was that the government has had the public's and the media's attention day in, day out, daily for the last 12 months. For example, a year ago, Boris Johnson said, we've been making every possible preparation. This country is very well prepared. And just a month ago, the Prime Minister said in his press conference, what I can tell you is that we truly did everything we could and continue to do everything we can to minimise loss of life and to minimise suffering. So yes, the inquiry will deal with facts, and once one fact stands out, the deaths from COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic exceed 121,000. The UK death toll is the worst in the world, pro rata. Was the scale of this tragic loss of life avoidable? We all deserve to know how and why this happened. The government has so far failed to learn from its mistakes and has not agreed to a public inquiry. This inquiry will hear evidence and the panel will draw conclusions which will be shared with the government at the end of it. Now, we're really grateful to the panel and to all the witnesses who are agreeing to appear over our planned eight sessions with the ninth to conclude. Each session will last two hours. Experts in their field and citizen witnesses will give testimony from their personal work or community experience. The sessions will be live as a webinar and also live on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. The panel will take into account questions sent in by the public in advance, although they won't be able to deal with them all in the session at all. Let me introduce the panel now, and we're really fortunate to have them. Our panel chair is Michael Mansfield QC, internationally renowned human rights lawyer, currently involved in the Grenfell Inquiry, and he has represented the Stephen Lawrence family, Hillsborough families, and many others. Professor Nina Modi is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London, and is president of the UK Medical Women's Federation. Dr. Tulula Oni is an urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council's Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge. And Dr. Jackie Davis is an NHS consultant radiologist, author, and BMA council member, although appearing in a personal capacity, as indeed are the others on the panel. And finally, Lorna Hackett, barrister at Hackett and Dabs, uh, it has very generously agreed to be counsel to the inquiry. So welcome to all of you. And it is now my honor to hand over to Michael Mansfield. I'm pausing to ensure that uh, all communications are being heard and visualized. Uh, it's certainly a great honor to be able to do this on behalf of the public of the United Kingdom, uh, 
who have been wanting answers to a large number of questions. Now, the reason why it's taking this form is that if we wait for a public inquiry of the usual kind, it will take years to set up, it will take years to hear evidence, and it will take years to report. Therefore, the likelihood of another pandemic, let's hope not, but the likelihood is that another one could have happened before we even get to the end of a, a full-blooded inquiry of that kind. It's still needed, but what is needed now is answers to immediate questions which are going to be posed. Now, the format, we're trying to endeavour to replicate what happens in, a, in an inquiry, but you will understand that we only have very limited time in which to do it. So it's a two-hour slot. We've got five witnesses. You can work it out for yourselves. It's roughly 20, 25 minutes to, or between that sort of time scale to get a witness uh, through some evidence. So it means inevitably that what they have to say is far broader than what you will hear. So they will have made statements, they will have made reports, and also uh, they may want to add. So this is only the beginning, the tip of the iceberg. The process will go on after the hearings, so that if you have questions, and we're, we've already received a number of extremely important questions, we will endeavour to get them asked, but they, you will understand that it may not be possible to get them all asked. That doesn't mean to say they won't be asked, because once the hearing's over, the witness will be asked on paper, by email or some means, um, what, what comments or observations do you have on these questions? So at the end of the day, when it comes to the reporting process, after the first eight main sessions, that we will take into account all the evidence that has been provided to the inquiry, not just those parts that you've heard on screen. So, and eventually it will all become part of the website of this particular exercise. This is the first time that a People's Tribunal has been conducted in this way over the next eight sessions. And it's one of the very few that are going, there are one or two other public ones happening at the moment remotely. But we're hoping that you will discover answers to a large number of questions that are urgently needed to be asked. Now, the questions will be asked by Lorna Hackett uh, of each witness. Uh, and we will have an opportunity as a panel, very short, to ask one or two extra questions. Now, that, that will come once she's finished hers, and then we ask ours, and then we move to the next witness. There will be a gap about halfway through the proceedings tonight to uh, uh, allow for a short film to be shown and also for captions to be uh, energised at that point. So may I therefore indicate that myself and the panel are looking forward to to hearing witnesses and I will introduce them, uh, but Lorna will ask, Lorna Hackett will ask them questions uh, based on what we understand they're capable of saying. Now the first witness, we're very grateful to her for coming, is Joe Goodman. And so may I hand over to Lorna Hackett to ask some questions, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Um, I'm hello. Good evening. I'm Lorna Hackett, and uh, I understand you are Joanna Goodman. Is that correct? Yeah. Thank you. Um, can you give uh, as a brief outline of your motivation for coming to this inquiry this evening to give your evidence? I lost my dad, Stuart, um, at the start of the pandemic on the second of April. He was one of those who lost his life. Um, because the lockdown came too late and because vulnerable people weren't effectively protected. 
my dad received his shielding letter nine days after he passed away and um, we believe he's most likely to have contracted COVID um, in a crowded hospital waiting room in, in the week before lockdown, at which point no PPE was provided um, and no particular measures were taken despite the vulnerability of the patients there. Um, very quickly after losing my dad, I felt that his death was preventable, um, that he didn't have to lose his life in that way at that time. And that I wanted to do something to try to ensure that lessons were learned and other people's lives were saved. And so as part of that, I became involved in setting up the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group. And since early last summer, we've been campaigning for a statutory public inquiry. I completely agree with what Michael said at the outset, that we can't wait to learn these lessons. And we were calling for a rapid review phase of a public inquiry last summer ahead of the second wave, um, which obviously didn't happen. And it's really heartbreaking to see so many of the same mistakes being made time and time again. So I hope that in giving evidence, I might contribute in a small way to ensuring those lessons are learned now. Thank you. Um, in terms of you talk about the, the COVID-19 bereaved families, which you, um, you, you set up after the death of your father. How many members do you uh, represent at this time? We've got 2,600 members now who are all personally bereaved. And in terms, you, you, I, I'm paraphrasing, but you must hear sort of similar stories. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, was the uh, was the um, people's experience of 111 and how they found um, the, the responses from 111 to be. Can you give us a sort of idea of uh, some of the stories that you've heard and people's experiences of the 111 service? Absolutely. I think um, over the past um, 10 months or so, I've heard hundreds of stories of families who've lost loved ones. And really early on, one of the key patterns that was emerging was of people who clearly needed hospital treatment, but were told to stay at home by the 111 service. And we were really, really concerned about this because, you know, obviously, if you're hearing that, that potentially people have lost their lives because of delayed treatment, um, you, you want to make sure that's not happening. So the kinds of things that people were reporting were that um, when they had gone through and said that um, someone had COVID symptoms, um, they went through to the COVID part of the 111 service and were being asked, um, very fixed scripted questions um, which when they answered in a particular way um, it was deemed that that person didn't need to go to hospital despite um, having really severe other symptoms that you would imagine at any other time would have resulted in them going to hospital so for example people passing out um, skin discoloration um, real distress and people you know people saying that you know this is this is the worst I've ever seen them. I've never seen them this unwell and being told to, you know, give them water and some paracetamol. Um, and also we heard reports of um, questions being asked that weren't particularly inclusive. So, for example, black people being asked if their lips were blue, um, which is not a way that um, low oxygen levels would, would show in black people. So um, we were really, really concerned about this and so we raised it and spoke to um, The Guardian and an investigative journalist called David Conn um, did some work on this and found that um, at, the, at the outset of the pandemic, um, the 111 service, the, the coronavirus response service was outsourced to a number of companies 
um, and that there was very, very limited training um, compared to the normal 111 service and also a lot of the clinical governance that would normally be in place. So, for example, we've had members who've made complaints and found that their calls were not actually recorded um, and there's no way of really reviewing the advice that was given to someone and, and what kind of state they were in. Um, so that's something that we've been really concerned about um, since really early days and obviously with a group like ours seeing people that are still coming in with fairly similar stories where people are either getting to hospital too late or in some cases not making it to hospital at all and passing away at home. Thank you. Um, I think um, those are broadly the questions that I wanted to ask you, but I am going to hand over to the panel and back to Mr Mansfield, who may have some other questions for you or the panel, the other members of the panel may do. Thank you. Uh, yes, I have, a, I have a quickie just while to see if any other members uh, have, have quite, you, you indicated that, uh, and maybe may part of the answer is 111, I don't know, that your, the, the death was preventable. What do you think was the biggest factor which would have enabled uh, uh, this to have been achieved? In other words, preventing it. In relation to my father's death? Yes, yes, sir. Um, so there are a number of different factors in, in the loss of my dad. So he um, was someone who had a number of health conditions um, to the point where he, um, when the COVID risk factors were put out in the media, it just looked like his health condition. So he'd had a quadruple heart bypass the previous year and he was um, undergoing diagnosis for um, cancer. So um, I think there are a number of things. So I think my dad was particularly vulnerable because it did take a long time to diagnose his cancer. It was six months from the point of suspicion to the day that we believe he's most likely to have contracted COVID on the 18th of March. Um, so I think potentially kind of capacity in the NHS um, that meant that he was in, in such a vulnerable state by that point. I think the fact that the UK hadn't locked down despite the evidence of, of the cases surging, the lack of community testing. So uh, where he was in the country in Norfolk, it was one of the last parts of the country to record a case of COVID. Um, and it was being presented as if there were still a really small number of cases. So our family, I pleaded with my dad not to go to this hospital appointment and to ask to have the appointment done by phone. Um, he was adamant that he wouldn't be asked to go if it wasn't safe, but clearly at that point, no action had been taken um, to protect staff or to protect patients. So he was in a crowded waiting room um, for over an hour with no ventilation, um, no PPE, no distancing in place. Um, and based on, on the timings of things, we do believe that's where he's most likely to have contracted COVID and so, yeah, I think definitely the protections um, that were in place in hospitals and he's by no means, I mean, roughly 40% of our group members believe that their loved ones um, contracted COVID-19 in hospitals. So um, I think the lack of protection in hospitals um, for both staff and patients is, is a huge, huge issue. But also the belated lockdown that meant, I think at that point, there were around 100,000 cases a day, while at the same time the communication was that largely people should be going about their lives as normal. So 
Um, I think there were quite a complicated, um, you know, multiple factors that were going on that, that contributed. Are there, I, I have one further question. I'm just looking at the panel to see if there are, yes, there, there is one from Professor Modi, please. Joe, I thank you, th thank you for that. And I just want to say that I found your, 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 your testimony very, very moving indeed. So forgive me because I want to pick, pick you up on a, or a pick up a point that may be quite painful for you, which is what happened when your father went to that hospital appointment in March. I mean, was, can I just re-clarify that he was not told at that point by any of the, the hospital staff that he should be separate from the other patients. They were in a, can I, can I just check that? They were in a crowded waiting room. He was there for over an hour. None of the staff were wearing PPE and there was no discussion of the risks and this was by now the beginning of March. This was mid-March. This was the 18th of March. Um, so I think five days before the lockdown announcement. Um, and, you know, we don't at all blame the frontline staff in, in the hospital. It's to do with the measures that were put in place. And the first thing that happened, so he'd already begun isolating um, and wasn't kind of going out other than for obviously essential things like hospital appointments. But he, um, the, the first kind of um, indication around COVID was that he began his chemotherapy six days later, which was the first full day of lockdown. Um, and at that point, um, I mean, he, he wasn't tested, um, but he was asked. So he was screened over the phone as to whether he had any COVID symptoms, um, which he didn't at that point. Um, he was someone who had a cough. He always had a cough. Um, and so it's hard to tell exactly when. If, if that got worse. Um, he didn't have a fever or anything like that. He was obviously generally very fatigued because he was quite unwell with the cancer. Um, but he, you know, so even at the point after lockdown where he went in for chemotherapy at that point, tests weren't available in a routine way and the only screening was whether someone had symptoms at that point. Um, and one of the hardest parts of um so we were one of the lucky families who were actually able to be in hospital uh, and see him which at that point was quite unusual um but Thank one of the know. hardest things was actually knowing that the chemotherapy drugs in his system were reaching their peak at the exact point where he needed to be able to fight off the covid and it just left him with no chance whatsoever thank you joe thank you uh, no other obvious questions. I, I'm going to just ask you one final one before thanking you very much for coming. It's not always easy to speak in public about these uh, catastrophic events. However, you represent, in fact, a very large group of people. And I think the panel would be assisted in this inquiry. Uh, do say if this is a big ask and one you can't really <laughs> satisfactorily answer or it's too too much work in fact involved but if you were able to as it were give us a, a short report summarizing the main themes of those who've been bereaved by covid because you you mentioned 40 percent a minute ago well that kind of figure could be very interesting because we're not going to have time to obviously see in evidence form all the people who have been bereaved and you've got as it were, a handle on that. Ah, yeah, we have a, an, an added question. Dr. Oni, yes, please do. 
Thanks, Michael. And, and thank you, Joe, so much for um, agreeing to be a witness on here. And I'm so sorry to hear about your experience and hope we can learn something from it. Um, you mentioned uh, very briefly um, something about some of the experiences of members of the Bereaved Families for Justice group around the types of symptoms that were asked. Um, so, for example, if you have blue lips and in a black person, which is inappropriate. I wondered, just picking up from that, whether there had been any other experiences from members of the group around um, this, the broader symptoms asked, because, you know, we know that the, the range of symptoms uh, for COVID has, has changed over time, but hasn't officially changed beyond the, the main three. So I wondered what the experiences of um, if you could if you could share some of the experiences of the members of your group um, with that respect. Absolutely. Um, I think the experiences are that the range of symptoms has been a lot broader um, than the kind of big three. Um, so a lot of people um, report that um, their loved ones mostly had gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, so diarrhea, vomiting, um, those kinds of things. Um, some people only really, really intense fatigue. Um, I know there's actually a lot of our members um, who are here and I think I can see the chat popping up with people talking about some of the symptoms. But yeah, I think that's also been one of the, the concerns and something that we've been calling for to be looked at as part of a rapid review statutory inquiry is the range of symptoms. And particularly, we would be really keen to participate in research around the kinds of symptom presentation that might be indicative of, of COVID that is likely to, to be very severe. Um, because, yeah, I mean, some people it wasn't identified as COVID early enough. Um, some people it was considered that it was fairly mild. Obviously, a lot of people who didn't have the kind of breathlessness. Um, I think that particularly with 111, um, you know, it was very much focused on whether someone was breathless um where some people were clearly um, you know their oxygen levels were very very low but they weren't aware of that uh, thank you very much and i think uh, uh, we're aware of the fact that trying to make an assessment over the telephone is one of the most difficult things and you need to be very well trained in order to deal with those calls if, if you could kindly report back to us if you feel you can if not don't, don't worry too much about it. Thank you very much for coming. I want to turn to the, the next witness, uh, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, whose name may be familiar to many of those of you washing, watching. So over please to Lorna Hackett. Uh, thank you. Um, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, could you, um, I, I understand that we don't have a witness statement um, from you for the purpose of these proceedings, but we do have, and I'm sure the panel are familiar with, um, the Health Equality in England Marmot Review 10 years on, which was uh, published in February 2020, and also the Build Back Fairer, the COVID-19 Marmot Review, um, which was published very recently in December 2020. Um, are those both your reports? They are both my reports and uh, they are my witness statements. I'm grateful. So you're, you're happy to answer questions today uh, in relation to some of the elements in those reports. Indeed. Thank you. Um, if, I, if, if I could please start with um, this very general question. There'll be a number of people uh, watching um, 
live and indeed uh, later on uh, social media who might not be familiar with the Marmot Review in 2010. I was wondering if you could explain uh, just a little bit about who commissioned that report and what um, what it was for. Yeah, I had been invited by the World Health Organization to chair a commission on social determinants of health. And we published our report in 2008. We, in fact, had a launch meeting in London where the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, announced that he had invited me to conduct an inquiry in England to answer the question, how could we apply the findings and recommendations of your global report to one country, England? And I did conduct that inquiry and we reported in 2010, we called our report, Fair Society, Healthy Lives. And I made six domains of recommendations uh, as to how to improve health and reduce inequalities in health. Early child development, education and lifelong learning. The third was employment and working conditions. Fourth, having enough money to lead a healthy life. The fifth was healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work. And the sixth was taking a social determinants approach to prevention. You notice I didn't mention the health care system. The health care system is absolutely vital, but lots of people uh, are looking at the health care system. And the key social determinants of health lie outside the health care system. It's what happens to people before they get sick. The health care system is what we need when we get sick. And we're blessed with a system free at the point of use. But I was dealing with the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age that lead to health and health inequalities. Thank you. Um, you mentioned six recommendations. Were all of those uh, supported and endorsed by the government? Well, the, the government, uh, I reported in February 2010. And then there was a general election called soon after, and a new government took place, uh, took its place, conservative-led coalition government. I was pleased initially. They issued a public health white paper, and they said reduction of health inequalities has to be at the heart of our public health strategy. We will not achieve reduction of health inequalities through the healthcare system alone. And we need action on the wider determinants of health. And they endorsed in the white paper five of my six recommendations. So I was very pleased. I was less pleased with what happened after the white paper was issued, but the white paper at least looked like a good step. Um, and again, for um, people who, who might not have heard or might not be familiar with the phrase, can you just describe what what health inequality is? I think you've you've touched upon it, but just if you can sort of describe it in a in a paragraph, that'd be helpful. We actually use two terms. The one usually used in England is health inequalities, which are the systematic variations in health between social groups. In England, usually described as some measure of socioeconomic position, income, education, employment, a level of deprivation of where you live. Mm -hmm. 
latterly, but it took a while, we now recognize that um, different ethnic groups suffer from health disadvantage, not only because of deprivation, although that has a lot to do with it, but because of racism and discrimination. And that's another form of health inequalities. The other term we use is health inequities. And we use that, and you notice my institute is the Institute of Health Equity. And we use the term inequities to describe those inequalities the systematic inequalities between social groups that are judged to be avoidable by reasonable means and are not avoided, hence unfair. And that's why I called my report Fair Society Healthy Lives and called my latest report Build Back Fairer to achieve health equity in other words, addressing those health inequalities that are judged to be unfair and putting them right is a matter of social justice. We've heard about Build Back Better as um, a, a catchphrase that's been banded about a lot, but this is Build Back Fairer. Um, and just building on what you'd said about um, health inequality and health equity, um, what have we seen happen since uh, that report in 2010 in this country? I don't want to go into the pandemic yet, but up until pre-pandemic, what was the what was what was the change over that ten-year period? So, my report in February 2020, health equity in Eng health equity in England, the Marmot Review, ten years on. The simple summary of the report as I said in the British Medical Journal, it was, we have lost a decade and it shows. Life expectancy, which for about a century had been increasing at one year every four years, and that had gone on since 1890. In 2010-11, there was a clear break in the curve and the rate of increase slowed dramatically and just about ground to a halt. Second, there was an increase in inequalities if we look at level of deprivation of the area in which people live. The social gradient, the more deprived the area, the shorter the life expectancy. I described that as a social gradient. That got steeper. And particularly if we look at regional variation, what we saw was that for the least deprived decile, 10%, the regional variation in life expectancy is quite small. If you're rich, it doesn't much matter which part of the country you live in. But the greater the deprivation, the bigger the disadvantage of living in the Northeast or the Northwest. And what we saw for the poorest 10% outside London, life expectancy was going down. So this is pretty dramatic. Slowdown in improvement in life expectancy, increase in inequalities, and health for the poorest people outside London getting worse. That's why I say we lost a decade and it shows. And what would you say the reasons for the uh, loss of the decade? Well, we looked at it. And being careful scientists, uh, this is not a controlled experiment. We can't 
definitively say that A led to B, but we looked at some of the things that did change. And you've got to ask the question, if the break in the curve happened in 2010-11, what happened in 2010? Well, there was a change of government. Uh, so the first thing we looked at was, had this happened in lots of other countries? And the answer is the slowdown in the UK was more marked than in any other country except Iceland and the United States. When you say so, slowdown, do you mean um, life expectancy? The slowdown in improvement in life expectancy. So in the US, life expectancy had gone down three years in a row. Um, ours stalled. The US was actually getting worse. Um, and Iceland were little country. Um, and so we looked at what had changed. Well, the first thing that had changed was that the government of the day had an ambition to roll back the state to reduce public spending. And they did very successfully. In 2010, public expenditure was 42% of gross domestic product. And it went down steadily year on year. So by 2019, that 42% had become 35%. Secondly, the reduction in public expenditure was done in a regressive way. If you look at the spending in local authorities per person, by level of deprivation, of the area in which those local authorities are situated, in the least deprived 20%, the spending per person went down by 16% over the decade. And then the more deprived the area, the greater the reduction in spending. So in the most deprived 20%, the spending went down by 32%. In my 2010 report, I coined the rather awkward term, proportionate universalism. I said we wanted universalist policies with effort proportionate to need. And what we saw in spending by local government was effort inversely proportionate to need. The greater the deprivation, the greater the need, the greater the need, the greater the reduction in spending. And then if you look at fiscal policy, tax and benefits, and look at families with children by deciles of income from 2010 over the decade, people in the bottom 10% of income as a result of changes to government policy in taxes and benefits got a reduction of income of 20%. The next decile, it was a somewhat smaller reduction. The next decile, somewhat smaller. So the poorer you were, the bigger the reduction in income as a result of changes to the tax and benefit system. Well, it's plausible that those changes would, I mean, that expenditure was doing something. You can't cut expenditure to that degree and expect nothing to happen. It's entirely plausible that those cuts and a number of other cuts uh, led to worsening health and increased inequalities. I cannot prove it. It's not an experiment. 
Um, so I can speculate. But when you look at the recommendations we made in 2010, as a result of synthesis of the global evidence on inequalities, and look at the fact that most of those went in the wrong direction over the next decade, you'd kind of predict that things wouldn't improve and probably get worse. And that's what happened in terms of health and health inequalities. So is health equality um, a good marker for the state of a society then? Is that what you're... Well, that's exactly what I've been arguing. Uh, I started arguing it when I chaired the Global Commission that you can... I, in fact, even before, I started arguing it when looking at health across Europe. In the communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe, health lagged behind the more, what shall I say, enlightened countries of Western Europe, where health measured by life expectancy was improving year on year, and it was stagnating in the communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe. And I said, this isn't working. Whatever they're doing, never mind whether you're a left-wing person or right-wing person or some other person, I look at health. And whatever was going on in those countries was not good for health. Those were societies that weren't working and they collapsed in their form. Um, so arguing that health is a good measure of how well the society functioning has something of a history. And I argued it with the Global Commission. And so when I looked at what happened in the decade from 2010 to 2019, I said society was not improving and inequalities in society were increasing. And I know that because health stopped improving and inequalities in health got bigger. Thank you. Um, turning, if I may, to the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, what do you think is the link between our preparedness for the pandemic, COVID-19, and social and health inequality? Well, firstly, let's look at inequalities in mortality from COVID-19. I described the link between mortality and level of deprivation of where you live as a social gradient. If you look at mortality from COVID-19, it follows the social gradient. It's almost exactly parallel with the social gradient in all causes of death. In other words, the causes of inequalities in COVID-19 overlap considerably with the causes of inequalities in health more generally. So inequality is playing a big role. In the most deprived three deciles, we see some excess for COVID-19, which we think is related to employment in frontline occupations and overcrowded conditions. The second thing with COVID-19 that's much bigger than we saw with inequalities in health more generally is the excess in Black British, classified as African, uh, Black classified as Caribbean, Bangladeshi and Pakistani, and to a lesser extent, um, Indian origin. And a big excess, much of it related to geography and deprivation, but not all of it. 
And then we look at, which you know well, how the UK did compared with other countries. And we had the largest excess mortality. So that's not just looking at COVID-19, that's looking at excess deaths in 2020 compared with what you would have predicted on the basis of the previous five years. And looking internationally, the US was a disaster and we had a bigger excess mortality than the United States. And then I ask myself, and I ask myself this, I put this in the Build Back Fairer report, what's the link? How come we had the poor health record coming into the pandemic and then a disastrous record of managing the pandemic? What's the link between those two? And again, I'm speculating, but my speculation is the link could work in four ways. Firstly, the quality of governance and political culture. And if we have time, I can spell out what I mean by that. Second, inequalities, social and economic inequalities, and I've described the inequalities in mortality from COVID-19. So second is social and economic inequalities. Third is the disinvestment in the public sector. I described the regressive changes to local government and the fact that NHS funding did not increase in line with usual NHS inflation and I'm using those words carefully, uh, the government said they protected NHS expenditure uh, spending, but if NHS spending had gone up around 3.8, 3.9% annually, and it went up 1%, that's equivalent to a cut, because that's two or 3% less per annum than had traditionally been the case. Um, so, the disinvestment in public services. And the fourth was we weren't very healthy. And that would predispose us to severe uh, COVID-19. So I think those four links potentially describe the poor health situation coming into the pandemic and what happened during the pandemic. And again, that's why I called my December report, Build Back Fairer. We have to do it differently. Um, just taking you back to your first point, we have about uh, three minutes before I'm going to hand you back to the panel for some additional questions. I'm sure there'll be, there will be some. Um, you talk about the quality of governance and uh, the political culture, and you said uh, that you would explain what you meant by that. Well, my number one recommendation is to put equity of health and well-being at the heart of government policy. Any government that had equity in health and well-being, never mind if it was the heart of policy, in its sights would not have pursued public policy the way it did um, from 2010 on. Any government that had health and well-being, equity of health and well-being in its sights would not have spent the better part of three or four years arguing about Brexit and doing nothing else. Um, that, I mean, where was the social policy trying to improve Britain? Um, it was arguing about, about Brexit. Uh, talk about dysfunction of our political culture. Um, and then we move into the pandemic phase. We've had 
a public health system in this country that has rightly been the envy of many other countries. What did we do when it came to setting up a testing system, test, trace, and isolate? Did we turn to our much envied NHS? Did we turn to our public health system? No, we gave contracts to our buddies um, and they failed miserably. What kind, and lack of accountability, lack of accountability. What kind of political culture is that? What kind of governance is that? And I'm not arguing this from a party political viewpoint. I'm arguing this through the lens of health and health equity. And I could expand further, but that's what the kind of thing I mean by governance and political culture. Uh, well, thank you, Professor Sir Michael Marmot. I really appreciate uh, the time that you've taken to answer those questions. Um, and now I'm going to hand you back to the panel. Uh, so, Mr Mansfield. Uh, yes, I may, may I just kick this off with a, a, a couple of questions, really. Um, one is related to the governance point, because what was happening before the pandemic and during the pandemic, you have very clearly indicated, are related. And that you, what I would appreciate is if you can translate that into practical terms. And it matters. In other words, how do you deliver health equity and equality in that sense? So that if there's a pandemic, the same kind of principles are continued and we do not get uh, the situation we've had over the last year. So it's delivery. How do you deliver that? equity you speak about so in such an articulate way. That's one question. The other, if there's time, I'm particularly interested in the, the role of the World Health Organization before the pandemic and during the pandemic and observations that they made at different times and the extent to which governments have regard to the World Health Authority or organization and the opinions that it uh, and reports that it makes. So it's really split into two bits. But if there's only time for one, the governance comes first, I think. Yeah, well, so the recommendations I made in 2010, let's start with um, early childhood. I'm not suggesting that's the key one for the pandemic, but as no. an example of how you could deliver it. We said, um, two kinds of recommendations. One, reduce child poverty. So, for example, uh, if you look not at our, well, if you look at what happened to child poverty after housing costs, it went up from around 27% in 2010 to 30%. So 30% of children were living in households after housing costs where parents had less than 60% median income with the household, and that went up. Now, um, that will set the context for what happens in early childhood in a very adverse fashion. We looked and said, we think child poverty should be somewhere between 10 and 12%. Where, how did we pick that figure? Because that's what it is in Denmark, in South Korea, in Finland, in the Czech Republic. There are countries that can do it. How do you do that? You don't have a regressive tax and benefit system. You don't take money away from the poorest people. Um, you can do it. You can make a change. That could be done tomorrow. The chancellor could next week or whenever he's going to get up and speak, he could say, right, we're going to reduce child poverty. 
Um, second, how do you break the link between child poverty and poor early child development? Well, sure start. That's a good idea. Let's have sure start children's centers. A thousand of those closed after 2010. So child poverty went up and a thousand sure start children's centers closed. So there's some very tangible policy changes. Education. If I wanted to improve education, I would not reduce the per pupil spending on education by 8%, which is what happened after 2010. That's not what genius decided the best way to use public money would be to reduce spending per pupil on education. What better use of public money could there be than spending on education? What an idea. So that's pretty tangible. Now, money per se doesn't make a difference. But what we do know is there's a London effect, whether it's because of greater spending per pupil in London or other reasons, I'm not sure. But if you look at the gap, both in early child development at the end of reception year and a GCSE performance, the gap between children eligible for free school meals and the average, the gap in deprived areas like Hackney and Tower Hamlets, that gap is small compared with the gap nationally. It's something like 4% of children, 4% fewer children have a good level of child development age five among those eligible for free school meals, 4% fewer than the average, whereas the national gap is about 18%. So London showed that you can reduce the gap between the poor kids and the average. Now, whether that's just because there's more money spent per pupil in London or because there are committed teachers and educationalists who see it as their job to close that gap. Employment. Now, unfortunately, it's difficult to point to the good examples. What we know is employment in the gig economy um, is very bad. The kind of working conditions that go along with the gig economy are bad for health. I'm desperately upset by care workers. Half of care workers do not earn a living wage and a sizable proportion are in the gig economy. What an appalling situation. People working, I mean, what a job. I mean, it's a job that can be extremely rewarding or desperately painful. And to be working for below the living wage with uncertain working conditions, it will damage their health and it won't actually be good for the people they look after. Um, so working conditions, income, having enough money to live on, um, a million people going to food banks, and food insecurity increased during the pandemic, um, increased dramatically. The Food Foundation published figures showing, and we cite these figures in my report, showing that for people in the bottom 10% of household income, were they to follow the healthy eating advice, they would spend 74% of their income on food. 
can't do it. Well, I think you've given a, a very copious answer so far. I don't, I don't want to cut you off. I'm, I'm conscious of time. So sure. for, for, forget my second question okay. about the WHO. If you could consider it in written form, we'll, we'll, we'll take that evidence separately. Now, I, I can see that one of our other uh, panelists, Dr. Oni, has got a question for you. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, uh, Professor Mar Marmot, for that uh, really important expose on, on, on where we are to get here. Um, I'd like to pick up, if that's okay, on the fourth point you made on the, the state of our health going in as one of the critical factors. Often the challenge there is the tension between in the middle of the emergency, focusing on now and the immediate action and, um, and actually acting to address the broader health inequalities that we know got us to a bad place to start off with the pandemic. So I'd appreciate your thoughts on the opportunities, missed or not, to address, to use the COVID response um, as a way of actually addressing some of these broader inequalities, either the causes or the consequences of, of, um, of the COVID uh, response. Perhaps if you have examples from elsewhere, that have taken this approach to, to see whether, is this, is this possible, right? So are we able to both address the pandemic at the same time um, and not waiting till afterwards because we know that almost never comes. So I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, when, when the Office for National Statistics published the data on uh, high mortality I tend not to use the word BAME, but you know what I mean, in different ethnic groups. And I was asked on the BBC, um, you know, the minister had said uh, that people from different ethnic groups should practice social distancing and wash their hands. And I was asked what I thought about that. So it was good advice, but I think we should deal with structural racism. And the questioner said yeah but what should we do tomorrow I said tomorrow we should start dealing with structural racism um, don't say you yeah, look just wash your hands and we'll get back to you um, you know let's start dealing with it right now uh, that's the time to do it and you can see that one of the things that's gone wrong and many people have made this point um, compare Japan and the United States now Please, whoever's taking a record, don't quote me on the exact, you can look it up and check. But there's something like Japan's had 7,500 deaths from COVID-19, but so you can check the right number. Uh, and the US has had more than 500,000. And the hit to Japan's economy has been small and the hit to the US economy has been big the hit to our economy has been even bigger. And this false trade-off between the economy and the public health uh, is a false trade-off. We can see uh, the Financial Times published it. The smaller the mortality from COVID-19, the smaller the hit to the economy. Manage the pandemic well, as Japan did, as Taiwan did, as Hong Kong did, as South Korea did, look east, uh, or as Germany did, um, the, manage the pandemic better, and then you don't get the big hit to the economy, and then you don't have to put everything else on hold. 
because there's a sense, oh God, we've got to put everything else on hold. We can't deal with anything else now. Now, I think we should be dealing with everything else now. But that's why I called my report, forgive me for saying it a third time, build back fairer, because I wanted, as we come out of this pandemic, to be dealing with this. Now, we've got to deal with it right now, because if children can't eat, you got to, you know, it took a footballer to um, get the government to change its mind about helping poor kids eat. Um, if children can't eat, you've got to do something right now. Uh, it's hard to do, deal with poverty right now, um, but right now is the time to be thinking about it and starting. I mean, we know that, I mean, a very practical one. There's been a complete, nearly complete failure of the test, trace and isolate system. One thing that makes life difficult, uh, please tell my son I'll call him back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we will need to stop soon. I was Very going sorry. to uh, just yeah, indicate. We're running over now. It's, yeah. But it's such a boon to have my son call me. It's a shame to have to decline it. Um, it doesn't happen so often. Um, uh, but one thing that would make the whole thing easier is if we had proper sick pay and financial support for people who need to isolate. Um, and so that's an example of dealing with the pandemic and dealing with poverty at the same time. Can I just ask now that um, <clears throat> because it, it, we're, we're trying to keep to the time, there's so much more that could be asked of you and, and, and I think will be. So as long as you're happy to respond in writing after uh, today too because there'll be many questions that have been people having heard yeah. your evidence so far but may I thank you very much indeed for coming and spending your time with us today for the questions that have been asked thank you very much professor it's my, my pleasure but I have somewhat limited ability to respond in writing it depends because we've just got a lot of other stuff on at the moment so Yes, no, well, I, we will accommodate you, don't worry. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Professor. My pleasure. Um, now may we pass to the... Sorry, Michael, could I just interrupt, Michael? We, we need to have a break now, I'm afraid, because we've run over and the, the person that's doing our captions needs to have five minutes before the next... Well, funnily enough, that's just what I was going to say. So... Um, in tune without saying too much. All right, we'll have the break now. Five minutes, is it? Yes, five minutes. And then we'll have the uh, Holly Turner is next. It's very important to stress that this is a uh, problem that I think is likely to become more significant for this country in the course of the next days and, and weeks. And uh, therefore, that we've been making every possible preparation for that and this country is very very well prepared uh, we've agreed a we've got a fantastic NHS we've got fantastic testing systems amazing surveillance of uh, the spread of, of disease uh, but we've also agreed a, a plan so that uh, as and when if and when it starts to to spread as I'm afraid it looks likely that it will we are in a position to take the steps that uh, will be necessary to uh, will be reasonable, will be possible uh, to contain the spread of the disease and uh, as far as we can and also to protect the most vulnerable. 
and uh, we'll be developing that plan or announcing the, the details of that plan, not just tomorrow, but in the course of the, of the days and, and weeks ahead. Well, I'm going to suggest we start. I think it's uh, everyone's back in place. Uh, thank you for the interval. Um, I'm conscious of timing. I'm saying it publicly. Uh, the evidence is so important that I think if there comes a point at which it's just impossible to get it all in, well, we may have to ask for some witnesses, if they're willing, to come back on it, because we have a spare session at the moment. I just indicate that because I, I think uh, a number of comments in relation to the last witness are very well received, and, and we're conscious of that. So may I uh, please introduce the next witness for Lorna Hackett, who is Holly Turner, please. Hi. Hello. Um... Holly Turner. Um, could you give the inquiry um, your occupation, please? Yeah, I'm a learning disability nurse and I work in CAMS, which is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Thank you. And I understand for the purpose of this inquiry, you have provided a statement which was dated the 24th of February. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And at the end of that statement, you've said that you confirm that this statement is true to the best of your knowledge and belief. Is that also correct? Yes. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you probably about sort of two or three different elements um, in terms of your, your evidence. I won't go through everything because we don't simply don't have the time. But um, could you provide a sort of a brief outline of um, how you've seen your job change over about the last 10 years that you've been working as an NHS nurse? Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, it's changed a lot, but but also very important to remember that it was still really hard 10 years ago. It's not something um, really new to the NHS that we've been suffering with short staffing um, and difficult working conditions and lack of resources. Um, but things have definitely gone downhill over the last 10 years. I think there's there's a few factors that come in come into that. I think um, other services that we have to work with obviously impact on our work. In in my role currently, a lot of the children that I work with rely on support from other sectors, and you all need to be able to work together to be able to provide those children with what they need to support them emotionally and behaviourally um, because these are you know we're working with some of the most vulnerable children that there are in society um, and a lot of them are living in extreme deprivation they're they're cramped into houses that aren't big enough um, there's parents sleeping um, you know makeshift rooms because they don't have enough bedrooms in their house and they've been on waiting lists for housing for goodness knows how long um, it's difficult to get respite for families and for children. Um, so I think all of that coming together in my current role makes it very difficult and, and things have definitely got much, much harder over the years. And I think currently we're seeing a lot of children being referred into acute mental health services um, where a lot of a lot of the cause um, behind their 
their struggles are the environmental factors that they're facing. It's not uh, necessarily um, just their mental health. Um, so there's so many other factors that are brought into it that why these children are struggling. Um, so just, and, just sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, could you sort of explain briefly about um, what happened with your already, it sounds like, you know, pretty difficult workload when the mm -hmm. pandemic hit? It, it was really, really, it was so difficult. I can't even explain what the families we work with have been through over the last year. Um, obviously, schools closed um, with all the special schools as well for all the children we work with. Um, these children rely on um, routine and continuity and predictability um, that's all the things that support them in being emotionally stable and everything was just completely taken away from them their school their respite their carers coming in to help these families at home um, and they just went into complete crisis um, and it was and it was very difficult to manage because a lot of children with underlying physical health needs, of course, you can't go in and see these children because the risk of COVID is just too high to some of them. So, and in terms of um, you, you talk really eloquently in your witness statement about how you felt um, working in the NHS when um, people started clapping for you. I just wanted to sort of expand a little bit on that. Um, what effect did that have on you, given what you've been through over the last 10 years and particularly the last year? I think what I found particularly difficult is that we've been crying out for support for a really, really long time. And we've been dealing with short staffing for a really, really long time. And I think a lot of NHS workers have felt like nobody really listens to us and there's not much attention paid to the situation we're in. Um, you know, it's been a long time that we've struggled with these circumstances. I can remember eight years ago working on acute mental health wards and working a 12-hour shift and there'd be no one to take over the night shift and staying all night and then there's nobody taking over in the morning and then you're getting to 9, 10 a.m. the next day. You know, we've been struggling with understaffing and lack of beds and really difficult circumstances for years. So, you know, it was great to have the public support it was it was lovely to have people showing appreciation for us I can't I can't say that none of that was nice I had somebody knock around and wash my car I had pizzas delivered all sorts and and that was lovely from the public um but it was also really really sad that that it took um a pandemic and these circumstances for people to actually appreciate the work we've been doing because we've been working in these incredibly risky and difficult situations for a very long time. And um, since then, I understand that um, you've been working even on your days off, is that correct, with the vaccine rollout? Yeah, I've been supporting the vaccine rollout locally to me. So, yeah, on so I work in my permanent job and then on my days off, I've been supporting the vaccine rollout locally, which, um, which yeah, it's been it's been excellent, it's been a success and it's been down to the NHS and I think it's evidence of when the NHS has the resources available to, to get the job done, they, they can do it and I think it shows the dedication of the staff that, you know, a lot of NHS workers I know are doing this on their days off because they want it to be a success and we know that we need to get through this. 
Um, and just briefly, um, before I hand you back to the panel, I know there's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, how has COVID impacted on your life personally? Could you tell the panel a bit about that? Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been very difficult. My my husband, he's a nurse as well. Um, he, he works in um, in crisis mental health, so he does a lot of assessing in A&E. Um, so very difficult. Our children are only two and six. Um, we didn't get school place for our, for our son because we were told that the school was at capacity, even though we're both nurses, um, which I think is down to the government expanding um, uh, what they classed as key worker. We know that there's been a, a lot of scandal about that, which I think is down to them not wanting to pay furlough. So we've kind of struggled with that, not having a place. Um, and I think, you know, coming home from work, my husband, he would have take his shoes off at the back door and get undressed not touch anyone um it was it was a really scary time um and then actually we did both contract covid and he's still off work at the moment so it's it's been incredibly difficult to manage well, yeah I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that but I, I really appreciate you giving this evidence to the panel um i'm going to leave my questions there but i will hand you back to michael mansfield who may have some questions or the the other panel members may but thank you holly turner for your evidence Thanks. I have one, but Dr. Davis has got her hand up. So your question, please, for the witness. Uh, you're on mute. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. That was very, um, that was very alarming actually. Um, I want to pick up something that was in your written evidence. Um, I wonder if you could just briefly confirm whether it means what I think it does. You say that private, one of the things that made life very difficult was that private services ceased to function throughout the pandemic. Do you mean that the work, that the, 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 the uh, NHS work that was outsourced to private companies stopped, stopped happening? Is that what you were saying? So most of it was respite services for the children I work with. Um, so most of the children I work with, because they're so challenging um, to support the parents' resilience um, as much as anything to be able to care for their children. A lot of them have a certain amount of nights a year or a certain amount of hours a week that they will go and spend at respite services. And a lot of those um, just stopped completely, as did school. Okay, thank you. Families. Um, I'm just going to limit it to one more question, which is one that's on my mind. You're on the front line. We're talking about preparedness for a pandemic, um, generally speaking. It's not just the NHS, but uh, uh, you're working within it. Was there ever any discussion with those of you on the front line before, you know, it hit our shores? So let's go back to 19, uh, you know, uh, uh, two or three years ago. Any discussion with you about preparations? Are you aware of any for such no. a thing might happen? Personally, I wasn't aware of any um, and building up to the start of this pandemic pandemic at the beginning of 2020, we there weren't discussions we were. And I think part of that is it's not great that there weren't discussions, but I think all the services are so stretched just getting your day to day work done. There's just so much limited capacity to be thinking about anything else. OK, thank you. Thank you very much for coming and spending time with us. I'm afraid you may get some other questions afterwards, which uh, we can deal with in writing. Thank you very much. Thank you. May I now turn to the, the, the next witness that we have, which is Professor 
Gabriel Scali, please. Yes, there we are. Uh, Lorna Hackett, please, questions. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Um, Professor Scali, uh, I understand that for the purposes of uh, this evening's proceedings, you provided a witness statement, uh, which is dated the 23rd of February 2021. Is that correct? That is correct. And um, at the end of the, uh, the signature, it says, I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Uh, is that still correct? It is correct. I have many more professional opinions, however, than, uh, than are included. Thank you. Um, well, as, as you know, we are limited for time. There's uh, lots of things that we would like to ask you. I'm going to limit my questions to um, quite succinct areas, but I'll just ask you to um, explain to the panel and to those watching um, what your uh, qualifications and experience are, please. I'm a medical doctor. I qualified and trained in general practice and then in public health medicine. I've been a director of public health in Northern Ireland for Health Board Northern Ireland and a regional director of public health in England in two different parts of England for, uh, for I think, 19 years. And I uh, left that post in 2012. And since then, I have been an academic. I have worked in uh, Parliament supporting the Shadow Health team and I undertake uh, research work and consultancy work. So uh, as a regional director of public health from um, is it about 1993 to 2012, um, were you responsible for emergency planning um, in this country? Yes, I was. I was part of uh, quite a comprehensive setup in each, that was present in each region of England of uh, regional resilience. And I had uh, personal responsibility for that. It was within my directorate uh, when I was uh, a regional director of public health first in England. I mean, subsequently, some of the arrangements changed, of course, with time I was, uh, I reapplied for my job eight times uh, during the course of that, which shows you how much restructuring took place in the NHS over those years. Yeah. Uh, and for people who don't know um, and uh, aren't aware, um, what was Operation or Exercise Cygnus? Well, this, of course, was after I left the Department of Health and uh, the regional job, and it was a, a, a training exercise aimed at uh, an influenza. The scenario was an influenza uh, episode of pandemic influenza. It involved a considerable number of people, I believe 950 people, and uh, resulted in a report which had a, a significant number of important recommendations in it. Um, and I, I'm just going to sort of interject here with a question from a member of the public. Peter Marshall from Ayrshire in Scotland uh, wanted to know to what extent the issue of Cygnus and the lack of action upon the conclusions of the exercise will be a part of the inquiry. Um, he's talking about a lack of action upon the conclusions of the, the exercise. Um, could you tell the panel and the, the, the inquiry about um, the state of the UK's readiness for a, a pandemic? Well, I think um, much of the readiness within the state had disappeared by the time the pandemic hit. Uh, I, during the period from 2010 onwards, in particular, there was a very distinctive hollowing out of the state in regard to the structures and organisation of uh, many of the relevant services, the abolition of regional government offices of the region, the abolition of strategic health authorities for the region, the uh, 
uh, abolition of uh, regional development agencies, for example. Uh, primary care trusts, the only body with a, uh, a, pop a defined population responsibility for provision of services, disappeared in planning services. Uh, and the NHS, of course, moved to, with the Lansley reforms, to uh, a commissioning and contracting model. Uh, the public health structure was uh, decimated. Uh, the regional uh, public health groups disappeared. Uh, directors of public health left the NHS, were transferred into uh, local authorities, had a much reduced role within local authorities and a much reduced resources. So from a health perspective, there was a, a phenomenal decrease and that was also true of other aspects of civil society as we moved to uh, commissioning contracting culture and really uh, almost a reversion to a night watchman state where the central government did very little and it was left to other forces to play out the handling of all sorts of so social goods, including healthcare. Um, so in terms of... Uh, you talked about the uh, the regionalisation, which then, uh, well, then followed um, the Public Health England was brought in. Now, what, what was the role of PHE to be um, in a pandemic? Well, PHE was the antithesis of regionalisation because both the NHS and public health became essentially nationalised uh, to NHS England in terms of the NHS and Public Health England. And Public Health England not only was nationalised, but it was also part of the Department of Health. Uh, it was an executive agency extraordinarily close to the Department of Health. They weren't even permitted to have their own logo or their own website. Uh, the staff all became civil servants and uh, lost that very direct connection with, uh, with local and uh, uh, regional activity. Uh, was it helpful to abolish PHE and establish the National Institute of Health Protection during a pandemic? I think that was an ill-judged move. Uh, it is the sort of thing that should really be done in a very planned and structured way. I uh, was concerned that many of the responsibilities in any uh, event seemed to disappear from Public Health England into the joint uh, biosecurity centre, if I remember its title correctly, about which we know little. Um, we don't even know who it's joined between. And um, uh, it was uh, part of, I think, partly blaming Public Health England, I think, for the poor handling of the of the pandemic or an attempt to make it out to be responsible for the poor handling. But in fact, the seeds of that failure have been set long before it by many of the changes that have taken place. Thank you. Um, I'm conscious that the panel's going to have some questions for you. So at this juncture, I will hand you back to Mr Mansfield. Thank you very much for your evidence from me. Yes, <laughs> thank you. I'm asking this question really as a member of the public, uh, not being an expert as, as you are in epidemiology. Uh, we have, you know, right from our school days in education, we have learned that repeatedly the human race since the sixth century have been subjected to pandemics and epidemics, often very different in the actual subject matter, but the pattern in which they occur and the source and how they travel and containment and the fact that those who are well off can disappear to places that others can't. All those factors have been known for a very long time. So the question I've got is, 
leaving aside Cygnus for the moment, because I'd like to know obviously much more, but I'll leave that for the moment. You know, was the, was there really a plan? Did anybody have a plan within the responsible authorities to deal with the possibility of pandemics, particularly? There, there was a plan for a flu pandemic that Public Health England had, uh, but it was a very limited plan. I, I think the point is, and you're quite right about the uh, the necessity of preparing for something that we knew happened on a regular basis, and we had plenty of warnings of that, and there had been plenty of planning uh, done. Uh, there were, for example, Dame Deirdre Hines' review of the uh, 29, I think it was swine flu. Uh, there was an awful lot of planning, more than planning went on for smallpox uh, after 9-11. Um, there was a, a great deal of planning. There were even teams of people immunised across the country for smallpox. Facilities identified where people would be uh, quarantined uh, if smallpox was terrorised, uh, turned into a terrorist weapon at that point in time. We had been through, uh, you must remember, several major national crises, uh, including uh, foot and mouth disease and uh, many of the principles about controlling a pandemic don't re or a major outbreak uh, of that nature are, are common to both human and animal disease. Uh, so there have been plenty of opportunities to, uh, to exercise our skills, develop our skills and develop our planning. It would be impossible to provide a plan for every contingency. If you have a plan or run an exercise like Cygnus, uh, Cygnet, or whatever it was called, the, the 2016 one, if you ran an exercise for a pandemic flu, one of the things I know about exercises for emergencies is that you will never have emergency in exactly the same way the exercise is run or the way the plan is written. So what you must always do is make sure you have the flexibility in your system and the capacity into your, in your system to react to events as they occur. And that includes novel infectious agents. And of course, we have plenty of experience of novel infectious agents with MERS, and uh, Scotland ran a very good MERS planning uh, uh, scenario after the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus appeared. And we had uh, uh, similar exercises for a wide range of contingencies. But all of that contingency planning and that contingency system was stripped out after 2010. The, the regional uh, function disappeared and local functions, and I included this in my evidence, uh, were uh, basically left to themselves and told to make their own arrangements for cooperation one with the other. And of course, because they were largely based around local authorities taking a prime role, local authorities over that period also had a huge amount of resource stripped out of them. And just to follow oh, up, and I'll be very just... quick and then I'll come to Professor uh, Modi. I mean, are you saying, therefore, that were it not for the deforestation, if you like, of the structure that were in place, Actually, we cope. We would have coped. I, I, I think we would have coped much, much better. Absolutely. And we had good warning of what we should be coping for. I think the foresight report that uh, the government prepared was prepared for the government in 2006 by the Office of Science and Innovation on infectious diseases preparing for the future was very, very clear about that and uh, about what needed to be done. And in fact, uh, Ironically, one of the photographs that was included in one of their uh, documents included a photograph of large colonies of bats carry virus with potential for transmission to humans. So this should not have come as a surprise to anyone 
that this sort of thing would happen if the system had been operating well in place and run by public health people. And I think that's one of my other points I made in my evidence, that we moved from a system which was uh, very much dependent upon a strong public health presence to a system where at the outbreak of this pandemic, of the three parts of the four parts of the United Kingdom, only one had a, a, a fully trained and experienced and qualified public health physician as their chief medical officer. And I regard that as a significant shift away from public health, uh, unprecedented in the last 100 and almost 150 years, not to have public health doctors at the centre of government. Professor May, please, I think has got a question, yes. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Professor Scully, can I follow on from those very insightful comments? Because you're quite right, we had the foresight report, we had the signature exercise, and you've explained very clearly that uh, public health experts understood what had to be done, and the country had been, or policymakers had been told what needed to be done. Yet, despite this, we went into the pandemic with the NHS crippled on its knees, but we also went into it positively ignoring what had come before. So I'd, I'd like to explore with you why that might have been, because you've explained clearly what has happened, but let's now explore why that might have been. Was it simply that we, the, the, the specialists, the professionals, failed to get the message across to policymakers? In other words, they were acting um, not willfully, but in ignorance. Was it because they were pursuing a particular ideological perspective or was it because in some way that you might care to, to expand on, they were acting uh, in a notion of misguided self-interest? Or was it some other um, reason that I haven't, haven't uh, encapsulated? Why should this have happened is the question. Please. Yes, that's a very good question. I, I think it was because public health in general, uh, the health of the people became uh, a lesser interest of the government than it had previously been. And that was reflected in all sorts of ways. And uh, I, I listened to Sir Michael Marmot explaining quite uh, very eloquently about what has happened with life expectancy, for example, and uh, over this period of time. The same thing has happened, uh, the same problem has happened across a wide range of public health indicators. Uh, uh, in infectious disease terms, for example, we lost our status as having eliminated measles in 2016. Vaccination rates have been falling um, in, in many respects. Uh, screening, uh, cancer screening rates falling. Uh, uh, rates of sexually transmitted diseases increasing. Rates of drug-related deaths increasing. There is a, a, a plethora of evidence that our health, our public health, has been in decline and that inequalities have uh, been weakened. And that is purely because uh, we have been unfortunate enough to have governments that have no real interest in improving the health of the population. Uh, I think it's time for one more question and then we, we must move on. Yes, Dr. Ernie. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Scully, for that, um, for your response. I I'd like, if I may, to move from the why 
why you think this could have been um, that Professor Modi just mentioned to the to the how, so the how how things could be could be better. So this is actually a specific point. Do you think that there is a role for engaging with the public as part of preparedness? Um, uh, and was has that been the case? And perhaps relatedly, uh, to what extent um, were the direct and indirect effects of the actions taken in the case of, uh, of, a, of an epidemic on health inequalities considered? Uh, good, good question. Um, engaging with the public. I, I do think there is a role for a public understanding of uh, what national emergencies can mean and what should happen. And I think we have lost that over time. Uh, I think there was a good understanding at various times. Um, but without really active local resilience fora at a local level involving the police, the emergency services, local authorities, all of, all of which have a public responsibility and are facing the public, uh, that has been lost. Um, uh, and I do think, believe it's important. If you lose that, you set yourself up for, I think, what we've fallen into here where there is very little engagement of communities and of the general population in our response to COVID-19. Their, their, their involvement seems merely to be to do what they're told to do, whereas we should be mobilising communities and we should be uh, helping those communities to take control of their situation themselves. And we're seeing some of that playing out in, for example, in the most contemporary way with the vaccination um, uh, issues that we have. And for example, the very low level of vaccination, comparatively speaking, that there is in some communities and in fact in London as a whole, uh, a, a very uh, concerning situation. Um, your second point was, uh, I can't remember, what, what was your second point? Whether equity, so we've seen ah. the impact of the of the not just the pandemic itself, but the responses. So in in planning the responses, how much of equity is considered? I, I, I don't think equity has been thought of at all, and it's very difficult to deal with equity issues uh, from Downing Street, except by the major levers of power. Uh, equity issues are best dealt with at a local level in the middle of a pandemic uh, by. Um, placing resources into the communities where, uh, where the pandemic is at its worst. And that is impossible if you don't have the resources. The failure to have a, a locally based fine test, trace, isolate and support system involving their directors of public health with the responsibility of helping the community to take control of the uh, pandemic at a local level and help them reduce that in, in, in the worst off areas is a really, really uh, major failing, but we can't do that. And we, we know of the failure of NHS test and trace. I don't think we know quite how bad it is because the, the, the testing system and the tracing system is far outside international guidelines. For example, we don't test close contacts. Amazingly, people who are at high risk because they've been in contact with someone who's tested positive, are not tested in the UK. They're told to self-isolate and come for testing only if they develop symptoms. And that's completely outside international guidance. And I think it, that sort of um, poor attention to what should be going on locally and working with communities to make those things happen, that contact tracing happen and make it real for people, is a major failing. 
Right, may I thank you very much, Professor, and I'm absolutely certain there'll be follow-up questions, supplementaries, but we'll deal with them on paper, as it were, but thank you for your attendance today. Thank you. The last witness today is Dr. John Lister, and I would ask, yes, he's here, if uh, Lorna Hackett would very kindly ask some questions of him. Thank you. Uh, Dr. John Lister, I have a, a statement in front of me that um, some several pages, uh, which I understand you provided on the 23rd of February 2021 with your signature. Um, and you have stated that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Thank you. Um, I might dot around a little bit because I'm conscious that we don't have a huge amount of time. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask you about is, um, well, actually, first, if you can just give the, the panel uh, a brief background of your experience and your occupation. Uh, well, I've been um, um, a professional uh, uh, analyst and uh, re researcher in health policy for uh, 37 years now. Uh, so I began in a GLC-funded uh, organisation back in 1984. Um, and uh, since then, obviously, we've been through various uh, changes of government, changes of regime, and we've tried to keep an evidence-based view as to how these uh, various um, governments have, have, have shaped up. Uh, so when we come to look at the last 10 years, then, you know, there's a bit of historical background there to actually understand how it compares and uh, how it compares with, uh, you know, the previous decade, for example, and so on. Yeah, so, so in terms of NHS funding, um, how has it kept pace with demand over the last 10 years? Uh, well, it hasn't. Uh, the, 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 the decade from 2000 to 2010 uh, was a decade of um, massive increased spending on the NHS, the new Labour government had many faults, but one of the things they did get right was recognising the need to invest very substantially in the NHS. Uh, we could argue that they could have spent some of it more wisely, but the uh, investment told in terms of the vast reduction in waiting times, uh, the uh, improvement in the treatment of staff, the uh, uh, paying conditions of staff were improved, the numbers of staff were increased, and, and, and the performance uh, responded on many fronts. It wasn't, again, I'm not claiming anything was perfect, but it was a significant improvement and appeared to be showing exactly what many of us had argued a long, a long time before, that what we didn't need was market type reforms. What we did need was investment to actually make the, give the resources to the frontline staff to actually deliver the service. Um, and then from 2010, of course, what we had was the election of a Cameron government uh, committed immediately to a policy of austerity uh, the rather bogus argument that we're trying to clear deficits, although none of that's actually happened. And we've had is then a, a, a effectively a reversal of the years of increase in NHS funding real terms. Uh, we've had, as was mentioned earlier, between one and a half and two percent increase uh, year by year compared to 3.8 to 3.9 percent average increase over the previous 40 years. And that has really dragged back uh, the NHS and created uh, deficits uh, on, on a massive level. Uh, in, in frontline trusts, but also uh, a, a real pressure on capital and backlog maintenance figures for hospital trusts have risen to a quite alarming degree. Um, so we've had a, an all-round reversal of the policy of investing in the NHS, and we've effectively had a real terms freeze on spending, while the population has gone up by something like 3 million uh, since 2010. 
And of course, at the end of 2019, when we did a, the responses to the election uh, campaign and so forth, we were looking at the, there was a period to actually take stock of that. And it, it was pretty obvious in all the measures that it had, the NHS had gone backwards in that period. Yeah, so taking you to December 2019, after the election, um, you set out in your written evidence um, very well what, what the picture was at that stage, if you'd like to sort of go into more detail on on that in terms of the, the spending uh, and the, the, the deficit, that'd be useful. Uh, apropos of, well, of which we can talk about the performance targets too. Well, the performance targets, I think, really uh, tell the story. The uh, the the um, uh, the 95% uh, target for 95% of accident emergency patients to be seen or treated within four hours uh, hasn't been met for five years um, and, and is a, a long way short of being met. Uh, uh, was a long way short of being met. The waiting list had risen to four and a half million. Uh, there were uh, uh, the, the, it was 15% of those were waiting uh, for, for more than uh, more than 18 weeks, the target uh, time. Uh, and of course, the uh, the the the, the, um, uh, the, the pro problem was exacerbated all round by staff shortages. You had a, a, a long term staff shortage uh, of up to 100,000 in total, but including 40,000 or so nursing posts were vacant uh, and a large number of doctors positions also. Repeated promises were made in the previous uh, three or four years up to 2019 uh, of, of large numbers of extra GPs were supposed to be recruited, 50,000 extra nurses were promised. And of course, what we've seen since then is because of the spending constraints, uh, because of the general scenario of the uh, NHS under pressure, it's been very difficult and, and virtually none of those uh, targets have been even begun to be met, let alone actually achieved. So it was it was an NHS under pressure in, in, in all fields. Um, the other thing that is a telltale story is the number of beds that were available in, in, in hospitals across England. So we had uh, back in uh, in 2010, we had 144,000 beds in total. That came down to 128,000 by 2019, uh, and, but that includes 9,000 of the frontline general and acute beds, the frontline hospital beds that treat waiting lists and emergency patients, but also a massive reduction in mental health beds, 5,000 or so mental health beds. Uh, that's 20 odd percent of the capacity was re removed in that period. Now, again, the model of mental health continues to change and continues to be moving away to some extent from hospital beds. But what we're seeing is those NHS hospital beds are effectively being replaced by dependent, increased dependence on private hospital beds, quite often at a long distance away from where people actually needed the treatment. And so this is not part of a, an improvement in services. This was part of a, an actual decline. And mental health remained under massive pressure long before the COVID epidemic has now part massive increased pressure on all fronts in terms of mental health. And what about the cuts in terms of uh, services for learning disabilities? Uh, well, again, a really substantial reduction in, in, in NHS beds. Now, again, that's not entirely a read across that it's an, an equivalent cutback because a lot of those responsibilities were transferred across to local government. Um, so it's a 61% reduction in an already much reduced level of beds for learning disabilities. But of course, we've got to remember local government has been massively cut as well during this period. So any responsibilities handed over to local government, and that includes, of course, social care is a local government uh, funding responsibility. And uh, also the, 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 within that, the care of uh, people with learning disabilities. 
it, uh, the local government budgets have been halved and, and it's been impossible to maintain a lot of the infrastructure outside of the immediate healthcare provision that could actually make life, uh, uh, enhance life and, 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 and deliver the kind of care that is necessary for people with learning disabilities. We mentioned, you know, certain, uh, Professor Marmot referred to some of that denuding of the basic infrastructure, or, or, uh, which actually makes it possible to actually, you know, look to actually improve and, and, and enhance the lives of, of people with learning disabilities. In your uh, written evidence, you talk about um, social care, a problem deferred, um, and the gaps in services leaving over a million vulnerable people without any care at all. Uh, how, how did that happen? Well, again, what's happened is that uh, social social care has been uh, was originally a lot of the long term social care for older people uh, was actually originally part of the NHS. There were long, specialist elderly care beds. Back in 1993, with the uh, uh, Thatcher reforms were implement finally implemented, um, and, and, and they were effectively privatised. The large proportion of those were NHS beds closed and private nursing homes took over uh, that, that area of responsibility. Now, uh, as, as, it, as it went along, then, then bit by bit, of course, more and more of these responsibilities wind up on local government, which is means-tested charges. And local government... Um, uh, as it came under financial pressure, looked for ways of reducing its responsibility to pay for placements of, of, of patients. So what we had was more and more what they called eligibility criteria were brought in, which actually means unless you get effectively now, it's at the point that unless you've got the most extreme levels of need, you're not going to get support from local authorities. And effectively, people who would have been of medium or maybe initially relatively low levels of need that might have been kept happily in their homes and supported by a proper, a properly resourced service are now getting nothing until they actually reach a crisis point. And this is why you've got this large level of, 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 of growing level of unmet need of, of, of people who are getting no services at all, rather than they, they sort of maybe a tapering up of services that might be necessary as they, as they face more, more, more need for support. Thank you. Um... How much money has been wasted on the transactional costs of a semi-marketised healthcare system? That's a really good question, and uh, governments have refused to answer it. It was ha hampered by the fact that when the market was first began to be introduced under, uh, again, the Thatcher reforms back in the 1990s, there was no baseline drawn deliberately. The government refused to draw a baseline so that we could actually start to look at what the comparative increased transactional costs were. We do know that the spending on bureaucracy, the spending on senior management, the spending on administration and so forth, significantly increased at that time in the 1990s. It continued to increase as Tony Blair's government decided to uh, you know, increasingly contract out clinical as well as non-clinical care and so forth. And bit by bit, of course, we've had then the consultancy culture has come in more and more with management consultants brought in to advise and drop systems that involve employing more management consultants and more private contractors. So it's almost impossible to put a precise figure on it. I, I would, you could say that before the market system came in, the estimate was that it was around, as I, as I recall, about six or seven percent of NHS spending was on, 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 on uh, effectively on administration management overheads. Um, and if you look at fully marketized systems, then the level of that spending is in upwards of 20%. So we're somewhere in the middle between that. We're not a fully marketized, a fully privatized system, but at the same time, we've obviously introduced a lot of the overheads and the complications that run along with them. 
but without bringing the funding in that these these systems generally actually have in train as well. And how much money was wasted on private procurement? Well, again, that's a, that's a similar question. It's, it's it's very difficult. I mean, even where you get a, a, a notional cost of a of a contracting exercise revealed, which is very seldom, even where you do, that generally excludes all the management time from the NHS side that's been involved, and of course the opportunity cost involved in that. What what useful things might they've been doing for patients? What useful things might other staff have been doing who were dragged off to actually participate in various workshops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, setting these things up? So, um, I, I I think that's that's again very very difficult. I mean, I think. If you're going to ask what benefits have we had from the uh, contracting out, then I think, again, you know, it's, uh, it, it, people would struggle to point to any benefits that have been achieved from this. I, initially, uh, when the first uh, contracting out began back in the 1980s, the idea was to actually go for the lowest tender, uh, despite qu talk about quality, go for the lowest tender so that you actually make some, some short-term savings. Now, that meant what that led to was a destruction of the quality of hospital cleaning services. You wound up with uh, you know, hygiene standards in hospitals falling, a proliferation of hospital acquired infections, notably MRSA, which took place during the 1980s as all this took shape, which has never really gone away. And so if you want to look at the long term damage that was done and set that against the very marginal savings that were made by actually basically ripping off the lowest paid and most exploited sections of the NHS workforce by dumping them into uh, real cowboy uh, companies uh, that, that actually were going to reduce their pay, their hours and the amount of, uh, uh, and, 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 and the, uh, the uh, increase the amount of work they're expected to do. I, I think, you know, it, it, it's a negative sum, however, however large it might be. The NHS have paid a really heavy price for privatisation as, as it's been driven through. Thank you, uh, Dr. John Lister. Uh, those are all of my questions. I'm going to hand you back to Mr. Mansfield, as the, I'm sure the panel will have some questions for you. I'll come to uh, uh, the, the, the rest of the panel in one moment, um, Dr. Davis. I, I'm going to give you a choice of questions. There's just two. <laughs> and this is not a lot of time. You can choose which one you want to answer, but uh, two really. One is, I want the, the whole point of this inquiry is to find some sort of uh, way forward, answers to questions, if at all possible, resolution and so on. We're facing at this moment an NHS that's exhausted. The people who are actually doing it, you know, they're now going to face all the other work they haven't been able to do, and they're really at the end of their tether. Uh, I'm putting it colloquially for the moment. So that, that's on one side. At the same time, the support structures that are outside that you talked about, whether it's local authorities or um, the care uh, sector and, and so forth and social work, that is also decimated in terms of the actual investment. So the first question is, how do you see investment and governance as a way forward? What is it that's got to be needed to get this back to where it should be and should have been before the pandemic? That's one question. And really the other question is, it's highly political, but I'm not afraid to ask it because I need to know the answer if you have one. Is there a link in vested interests between the politics of governance and the, and the private market in the health industry? Uh, well, the, the quick answer to your second question is yes. 
um, uh, but, but it, you know, it's not it's not universal. Not all MPs uh, from the governing party are necessarily up to their arm, armpits in uh, involvement with private companies. But clearly, there are continued links, and uh, we just need to look at this, uh, some of these contracts that have gone out during the COVID pandemic to see uh, the, the the really blatant way in which some of this has been done. So, I mean, I, and that, that's a matter of public record now, and 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 there are court actions going on now to try to reveal some of the details. Uh, where they've, they've been hidden. So I think the answer to that is is yes. And, and you know, clearly, if you've got a government which has, which has, uh, um, my, my Professor Marmot was pointing out, as Gabriel Scali is pointing out, a government that really doesn't care about equalities and really doesn't care about the poorer people, doesn't really care what the impact of its policies are, then it's very difficult to get it to invest seriously in, in an NHS that's going to meet the combined needs of a, a pandemic and the other demands which are already there on the NHS. Can I just touch very briefly on your other point? Because I think what, what needs doing, we need money now to actually put the NHS back into operation again, because we've got, uh, I mentioned the bed reductions, which were very serious up until 2019. But what's even more alarming is during 2020, during the COVID pandemic, because a lot of those beds were not socially distanced from each other, they've actually reduced further the number of beds. And we've had a, actually five or 6,000 beds have actually been deleted now from the numbers of beds available in the NHS. So in one year, which is an, an unprecedented cutback in, in actual capacity. And on top of that, the beds that are still there in the NHS are currently only 70% occupied, whereas prior to the pandemic, they were 90% occupied. And they get, so we've got a huge reduction in frontline capacity of the NHS. So we need investment in the NHS to remodel some of our hospitals. We need to halt to some of the sales of that land and assets to make sure that some of those can be repurposed to provide extra space to enable the NHS to put itself back together again. And we need the investment in staff and frontline staff to make those services work. So I, th I think we need we need those. And instead of which, the government has now announced that they're going to be spending £10 billion over the next four years on contracting out to private hospitals work that ought to be done in frontline NHS hospitals because the capacity in the NHS hospitals is not there. So I think that this is an extremely serious area where clearly investment decisions, and we're talking here, hundreds of billions of pounds have been spent during this pandemic without any great regard to whether or not it could be immediately paid back. We're looking here for a few tens of billions of pounds to put the NHS back together again, to tackle a nine billion pound backlog maintenance bill, but also to get the NHS capable of delivering a care through a pandemic, as for a balance of care for pandemic and also for other patients. And we do need, I think, to get that firmly on the agenda. And Dr. Davis, I think now is the moment. Nurse, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Um, John, I know you've got an encyclopedic knowledge of the NHS. I wonder uh, if you could just give us an idea of how we compared with other countries when we went into this pandemic, particularly with a view to intensive care beds, um, doctors and nurses per capita um, and spending per capita, because people will point to systems abroad and say, well, look, you know, they've done better than us. But that may be because they're better funded than us and, and better and better equipped. Yes, I think all, all the systems that anybody from the right wing think tanks and these other people flag up as alternatives to, you know, but oh, they're doing it much better in France, they're doing better in Germany, they're doing better in the Netherlands. Every single one of those is spending significantly more per head uh, in, in terms of investment in the in, in healthcare systems than we are. So 
you know, and that makes a big difference because that means, for example, in Germany, they can have this very significant already in place investment in intensive care beds and so forth that were there. That meant they didn't have the mad scramble around that we did for ventilators and so on. They were able to actually accommodate uh, and so forth. And of course, in Germany, they maintained their publicly, uh, uh, locally controlled and publicly uh, organised um, uh, search and trace, test and trace system as well, uh, which used to be a public health function and, uh, and, and clearly is best delivered by public health. But again, that needs investment. And, and if, if, if we're stripping out money from public, from local government and from the NHS simultaneously, and at the same time, as, uh, as, as, as Professor Marmot's pointing out, with, with, with social determinants driving up levels of ill health and illness and creating more burdens on the NHS, then we're creating a no-win situation for the NHS. It's creating an almost impossible combination of circumstances in which the buildings are falling down, the, the existing buildings are not fit for purpose because they need to be remodelled and need investment. We've got 50,000 staff off sick, plus the 50,000 uh, 50, uh, or so, uh, 80,000, I think it is, vacancies. So we've got a major, major problem in which, you know, we've actually got to resource our NHS. And simply pointing to other examples where they're already spending more and have been for decades more than we are per head of population is just pointing out that really people don't really want to solve this problem. They want to look for bringing in private solutions rather than actually looking at improving the NHS. I say a wonderfully timed answer. We have about 60 seconds left. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's fair to say you will also get a lot of extra questions on the back of this. Happy to do that. I just remind everybody who's watching, maybe uh, Mr O'Sullivan would want to say it himself. However, uh, I wish uh, all of you well. And we have another session on the 10th of March. Um, when we're looking at the government's response. Well, you've had quite a bit of that included today, so there's an overlap between the two. And I hand back to our sponsors. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much to the whole panel and, and to Lorna. You've been absolutely great in helping the witnesses who have also been wonderful, helping them give their testimony and explore uh, the issues that they presented to you. I'm sure that the audience has been really appreciative and the chat room has been buzzing with it. Um, could I just say to everyone that's listening, um, we hope you will have enjoyed this. There's a significant cost involved and if you're exercised to do so, please help us with a donation to, the, to our crowdfunder. Uh, Tom's put it in the chat room, but it's also on the website. Uh, www.peoplescovidinquiry.com and uh, at the bottom of the homepage there's a, a donation button but please do that but also book in for the other sessions as, as uh, Michael has said we will be populating the website with more details about forthcoming sessions a lot of it's there already but as we confirm witnesses we'll, we'll be doing that we also will be producing uh, some output from these sessions onto the website. There's a really substantial already section called evidence with a lot of, of uh, references to very good reports, including the absolutely wonderful independent SAGE, uh, but also government reports, uh, some of which are very revealing, including yeah. National Audit Office. So there's a lot on our website. I hope you'll stick with us. 
Um, we may have had some glitches in streaming on social media tonight, but this was our first trial and we will have learned a huge amount uh, technically and everything else as well as 